This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. James Wise is an author, a partner of Bolderton Capital, which is a $5 billion European venture fund, and a trustee of Demos, cross-party think tank, championing public engagement in politics. In his new book, Startup Century, Why We're All Becoming Entrepreneurs and How to Make It Work for Everyone, James analyzes the future trends of work and employment and questions why we're seeing more entrepreneurs than ever before. So there's this massive shift happening uh, in people wanting to be entrepreneurs and secondly having to be because if you look at the most successful companies in the world they're doing more with fewer people we record this episode live at the conservative party conference where we discussed his new book ai and the passing of our mutual friend the founder of nutmeg nick hungerford james welcome to jimmy's jobs thank you what is the job of a venture capitalist <laughs> thanks thanks for asking <laughs> we now have a, uh, a chatbot on jameswise.com forward slash chat um which i've been training and the first question is always what's your net worth a bizarre thing that people ask <laughs> that's the first question and the second question is what do you do uh, um uh, and so i could let the the ai respond to that but but my job really is to allocate capital into brilliant people who are building world-changing businesses right so that's the shorthand version of that. You know, what that means is taking views on who is going to be able to see how a big market is going to change decades into the future and attract the talent and capital to, to seize on that change. Uh, and actually, when you get really into the weeds of it, that's really, really hard. Yeah. But at a high level, it's pretty easy. Find brilliant people, give them money, make sure they're going to change the world in a, in a way which builds a big business in the process. And give us some examples of the companies that you've backed over the last... Well, we've been very fortunate at Balderton. We've been around since uh, 2000, actually. We started off as a, as a US fund starting up in Europe, of which there's many now who followed. And about 10 years ago, a bit more than 10 years ago now, we, we broke out of that, of that relationship because we believed Europe and, and in particular the UK had a huge opportunity to build its own funds. And in that time period, uh, we've been the early investors or, and sometimes first investors in companies like Revolut, uh, early investor in Darktrace, uh, companies like Depop, uh, Go Cardless, Nutmeg, I think we've got over 20 unicorns in, in the Balderton stable, uh, we call it. We, we, and you are, are in a literal stable. We are in a literal stable. Our offices are in an old stable. So that's why it's not just some uh, awful play on the word unicorn. Uh, so we backed some very big businesses. We've backed 250 startups um, over the last 20 years. Wow. And so how much capital have you deployed then overall? Just give people an idea of scale. Uh, so around £4 billion. Pounds. Yeah. Uh, and obviously that's us deploying capital. Uh, but we hope every time we invest, others will will uh, invest as well. So actually, we like to think, the math isn't perfect here, but we like to think we've attracted about $20 billion at least of capital globally 
into startups that we helped uh, invest in at an early stage. Um, and what stage of the cycle are you investing? Mainly Series A, Series B? Yeah, see, I, personally, there's you know there's a number of partners at Balderton. Um, I do more of our early stage investing, um, so lead at Series A predominantly. And so what that means is, you know, there's different stages of risk when you're building a business, right? The first risk is team, right? You, you start a business, you know, you're the founder, who you're going to hire first. Um, we don't take risk on team, so we always try and back the best people. You know, entrepreneur first, for example, they take risk on people. They're a talent, talent investor. We don't do that. The second risk is product. Can you build something people actually want? Um, and we normally invest once the product's live and has some data. So it means that you've, you know, it doesn't have to be revenues, you don't have to be selling it. Um, but we want to see that you've built something people, people are enjoying. And then where we take loads of risk is in go-to-market. So can you sell that product? Can you take it global? Uh, and then market size, can we, have you seen something that, that others haven't seen yet? So, so that means normally we invest after the product's gone live, before the product's really exploded. And that's normally Series A. But we, can, we do have a growth fund, which invests at sort of scale-up stage as well. So every year we say we invest anywhere between $1 million in companies and $50 million in companies. But I personally focus mostly at Series A. And how is the... So how big is the Boulderton team? And how does it divide up? Kind of sketches an organogram of it. So we've got about 25 people on in our investment team now. Um, we have seven partners. And we have um, a managing partner. And we have uh, around 70 people in the organization as a whole. So as well as sort of people who are investors who uh, either they're covering a country, for example, or they're covering a sector. Mm-hmm. Um, we also have a great marketing team led by uh, the former head of marketing for Twitter, Amir, um, or X, I guess, yeah, Amir. Yeah. Uh, X, X. X. Uh, she's XX. <laughs> I, don't know, I don't know how Rachel um, <laughs> describes her role now, but she's phenomenal. She's got a great marketing team who help our startups. Uh, we have a phenomenal legal function who do a lot of our in-house legal work. You know, so many transactions and so many issues that our companies have to have to cover, and they provide insight into that. Uh, we have a finance team, sort of strong finance team, which help us once again also help our portfolio companies. We had a head of a talent um, uh, who had previously worked at Elastic, which is a big, big uh, IPO'd company in San Francisco. So we've got a broad range of services. So half, more than half the firm is focused on supporting the companies, and the other half of the firm is focused on investing in them. And must have, has, has that changed a lot in terms of those kind of services that you provide quite a lot? Completely. And it's changed partly because the market's changed. And it's changed partly because the, um, you know, the scale of our operation has changed in line with just the, the opportunity set as a whole. Mm-hmm. So when I started in venture, there were three juniors in the team. And now we've got something like 15 or 16 or something. Yeah. Uh, at, at a height, we had that many people. And, um, we were much, much smaller as an organization in terms of the money we managed and the number of companies we'd invested in. But the whole approach was different. I think in Europe in particular in 2010, which is when I, I got my first experience of venture capital, it was, it was a pretty reactive affair. People came to you and said, here's my big idea. Yeah. I'd like some money. And we had these offices in Mayfair and we sat there and people turned up. And now it's such a competitive, proactive, you know, it's a hunter mentality now. You've got to go out there, find the entrepreneurs, convince them to work with you because there's which is good as a whole, there's more competition for it. Uh, and you've got to come to events and you've got to be part of discussions and policy discussions and build brands. So, so the competition's increased, but the opportunity set's increased and we've managed to raise more money because our returns have been so strong. Yeah. And with more money, it means you have more fees to invest in things like your marketing team and your legal team and your finance team, which is what we've done. Um, and how did you get into it all? Yeah, it's a good question. So I, I've been, uh, I describe myself as a bit of a tinkerer. Yeah. I love building little, little things. So, you know, even as a kid, I, I worked at, you know, as a, 
I think I've had had ten or something different jobs in my life, and um, possibly more. Uh, and I love building stuff. And uh, I started off just building websites actually around Manchester. So there was a a laser company spin out of the University of Manchester. I built their first website and a bunch of real estate companies and recruiters and stuff like that. So I, I always love tech. Um, but I did um, what everyone basically did that I knew, which was very sad. When I, after I went to university, I went and became a consultant. Uh, um, so I had an amazing experience. I loved it. I did it for two years. And while there, I got to work on, very fortunately, got to work on some strategies around scaling large technology businesses. But really what happened is, so that's, the, that's sort of my background, but really what happened is I met a bunch of people who went on to become entrepreneurs and were entrepreneurial to their core. So um, Hiroki, Hiroki, who's the CEO of GoCardless now, mm-hmm. sort of a phenomenal business. And Matt Robinson is one of the most prolific angel investors now in, in the UK. And Tom Blumfield, who, who founded GoCardless and Monzo, is now a Y Combinator. And I was surrounded by these people who were building this next generation of technology companies. And I thought, wow, super interesting. How do I get exposed? How do I work with these kinds of people? They're my friends, but I'm so inspired by them. How do I work with them? And it just became evident to me the best way to, to work with people um, in that space uh, was through venture capital. And so, so I started applying for roles. And to be honest with you, I was really lucky that just not many people were doing that uh, in Europe sort of 13 years ago. Um, and what are you looking for when you're backing an entrepreneur? So it really varies. Uh, it's a hard question because not only does it vary in terms of the skills we look for um, matching the stage of the company or, or the sector they're in, but also, uh, you know, internally, um, you know, every time we look at a, an investment, uh, we, you know, we, we have an investment committee and we debate internally like what we like about it. And it's not, it's not universally agreed that this is going to be the, the future winner, yeah. which means that we all have different perspectives around the table. So, so I don't want to talk too much for Balderton as a whole because I'm, I'm one voice there and one vote. But the things that we do look for are sort of spikes in particular areas of people's um, talents, talent suite. So, you know, you don't have to be IQ 200 uh, for sure. We have some entrepreneurs who, who sort of aren't particularly academic mm. and some that are. Um, but we look for other areas of intellect spike. I like to say curiosity. Um, so, you know, when I, or some of the questions I love to ask people is sort of what's the, you know, who's the most inspiring person in your field? Or what's the best book you've read on, on what you're building? Um, or, you know, what, if, if you were to recommend a newsletter to me. And what I love is people who've, who are just so curious and obsessed with the space they're in, that they've got a list of 20 names and 50 blogs, and they've read them all, and they have disagreements with them. So, like, intense intellectual curiosity is one. And obviously, in some areas, if it's machine learning and deep learning, maybe you have to have a very high academic background, but you don't have to have an academic background to be curious, yeah. by any means. Um, we have to have ambition you know this venture capital isn't for everyone it's a very specific financial asset um group and uh, for it to work for us to be able to invest in 30 companies and genuinely think 29 of them may fail one of them has to be a huge success astonishing success yeah uh, and that means the founders we back have to be very very ambitious and it's hard to tease out but you can you can find ambitious people and you can ask them the right questions and tease out other people and then i've got my final trait before you jump in here is competition Right, you, It's sort of people who are highly competitive. Yeah. Um, and you see that early on. Like You can see that in sports. You can see that in the local chess club. You can see that in the, the, you know, the, the lifestyle stuff they do. Competition comes in many different forms. But I think that desire to win as well as the ambition and the curiosity to get you there, I think is a, is a triple threat we're sort of generally looking for some balance of. But I'm really curious about the ambition bit there. How do you... What, you know, that's sort of giving away the secrets, I suppose. But, but what, what question... How do you... How do you assess mission questions? 
Well, there's there's, there's a thin line uh, sometimes between uh, naivety and and uh, and sort of arrogance and um, what people can actually achieve. But you know, I, I regularly meet people who I'm blown away by who they compare themselves against. As people say, like oh, you know, I I, I want to beat Elon Musk at getting us to Mars. Okay, wow, that's bloody ambitious. <laughs> uh, and obviously, you could anyone could just say that. It has to be backed up by yeah, right. Like, that- wow, that's really interesting. Or if you, if you say, like, who inspires you? And you say, well, you know, Florence Nightingale is the most impressive nurse and, and probably healthcare practitioner of all time. She changed the way nursing works. You'd be like, well, that's pretty big. That's a big, yeah, that's yeah. A big hairy goal, as they say in consulting. Um, and, you know, not too limited by, you know, where do you want to have impact? So globally. You know, I don't want to be the biggest name in my town or the biggest name in my country. I want to be the biggest name globally. That, that gives you some indicators of ambition. Mm. But it's not just sort of, looking forward it's also looking back you know we had a we invested in a founder recently and i was i was asking about his team and he just hired a new vp sales uh for the us and he said no one thought i'd be able to hire them i was like i love that you were every everyone told you 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 probably couldn't hire this person because they were really senior in their industry and to be honest with you they were getting a pay cut and they were taking a big risk and he was like no one thought i could hire them but i did and that level of ambition where you can say, you know what, I'm a tiny startup with no resources and, and very little chance of succeeding. And I can go out and find someone at, you know, name the big tech company and convince them I'm the future. That's a pretty ambitious approach. This is a very broad question, but as you've talked about hiring that, I think it's really interesting. Like when you have decided to back a company, what? What is then your advice to founders on hiring? You know, I, and I realize that is a hugely broad question, really difficult, but just some reflections on, okay, you've just been given a, a wedge of cash from Bolton, right? Like what a lot of these guys do is go and spend it on people, right? Like and, and hiring people. So what's your just sort of like broad contours for what you say to those founders? Yeah, you're completely right. You know, I think most of the money we provide to founders goes on, on people. Yeah. Uh, goes on talent, as it were, and these days also a bit to GPU, a bit to marketing still, but mostly it's people. Um, and so that there's a whole raft of advice we give to people. We, we have a phenomenal head of talent who um, provides detailed advice on this stuff, and we also have expert advisors in different sectors. So um, we have the former CPO of Booking.com, who helps with product mm-hmm. hiring. Um, we have the former uh, CTO of Critio and on Fido, who helps obviously with technical fi- hiring. Is also on the technical advisor board revenue. So, so there's loads of technical stuff that you can do for hiring. And increasingly, not just in engineering, people used to just do technical stuff in engineering, now in marketing and sales roles and stuff. So we can go deeper into that if you want. But I think fundamentally, you need, anyone who's joining a company at Series A is not going to get an easy ride. Maybe over the last few years, there's been a perception because of the cheap availability of capital that, that startups are actually the place to go if you wanted to get paid more. Uh, or you wanted a better work-life balance, right? And, and you know, the, the real truth is, if you're going out to fundamentally upend an industry that's been around for hundreds of years with a new technology, it's really hard work. It's really, really hard work. And it's stressful, and it's uh, high risk, and um, it won't pay well. Because really, every additional dollar you make or pound you make should be going into R&D. Yeah. Um, it shouldn't be going into bonuses initially, right? Obviously, once you scale, that changes. And so when hiring, you need to find people who are as hungry as they are experienced, if not more so. So it's fine to hire someone who's got 20, 30 years experience if you still feel that they've got the hunger to go and completely change an industry. And sometimes they are the most hungry people because they've you know, suffered through it. And I'm on the board of a renewable energies business. And uh, the founders there have worked in the energy sector for 20 years, but they're still so hungry to change it all. Um, but also, I think it's fine to take risks on 
younger people or less experienced people rather in that particular segment, if you feel they are there uh, to fight uh, for, for the change you want to see. And you know, this, this, is, this is not uh, something I recommend to any startup founder, but the company I, I just mentioned in the renewable energy space, there's probably 10 or so employees now who've got the logo tattooed uh, on their arms, which is astonishing commitment to a, <laughs> to a cause. I don't know if there's a Jimmy's Jobs tattoo group yet, but, <laughs> but you know, um, it's just astonishing commitment because that's not recommended, but just to give you a sense of like, you know, what a, what a really ambitious culture looks like is that yeah. people who really care about what you're doing. And the number one thing I think you can hire for is someone who will, is, is ready to go out and fight because they believe in the scale of the opportunity and the change that you as a business want to make as much as anyone else and everything else, talent or experience or, you know, ability to, 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 to problem solve or communication, everything else should really come after that first point of, of, of drive and, and, uh, hunger. Yeah, oh, it certainly shows commitment and ambition getting completely tattooed on you. Um, Especially because our companies do change logos <laughs> and <laughs> names. Yeah, yeah. Totally. That's the real risk. It's like one up from merch, isn't yeah. it? Right. Um, and you've just written a, um, a book as well. Tell I have. Us, tell us about that. Startup Century, mm. Why We're All Becoming Entrepreneurs and How to Make It Work. So you know, one of the observations I've had in my job, which is a, a tiny aperture into how the world's changing, is in the huge increase in the number of people wanting to be entrepreneurs, which is a hugely positive thing. Uh, And I see it obviously in the technology space, but it's actually universally true. So if you look at the number of people who are self-employed in 2000 in the UK, it was about 3 million. Today, it's about 5 million. Uh, If you look at the number of new businesses created, President Biden said a couple of months ago, he's had 10 million new businesses created under his tenure, the most any president has ever had. And every year it's accelerating. If you look at the number of people who have got um, second incomes from selling stuff online, it's about 40% in certain um, parts of the world. Uh, and you know, that's before we go into the rise of freelancing and gig economy work. And so there's this massive shift happening uh, in people wanting to be entrepreneurs, wanting to be um, you know, independent to some degree, and secondly, having to be. Because if you look at the most successful companies in the world, they're doing more with fewer people. Uh, and you can, you can track the S&P 500 companies. How many people does it take to uh, generate a million dollars? And it's just falling and falling and falling, right? And so my, my observation is what happened in farms over the last 100 years mm. and factories over the last two or three decades is happening in firms, right? The firms are the bedrock of, sort of high-income nations' employment over the last couple of decades. We all worked in firms, SMEs and big ones. And, you know, the aspiration wasn't freedom from the office. It was the corner office. That's what people were ever, ever yeah. going for. And we were all on these you know, steady career tracks. And, and, and if anything, that was sort of the bedrock, not just of, culture, but also the welfare state uh, and our education system and the financial system to some degree, your mortgage and your pension, all based around this idea of a corporate career. But clearly that's not happening anymore for a large number of people and it's growing. And so the book is uh, tracking some of that and the technologies that have um, underpinned it. Some of the academic reasons, sort of the theory of the firm, why did firms exist in the first place and and how they've been undermined. Um, But most of the book actually is um, how do we respond to this? How do we close the digital divide, which may be keeping some people out of that opportunity? How do we change our education system? How do we change our finance system? And how do we change our culture to embrace entrepreneurship? Because it's my view, rightly or wrongly, let's see, but it's my view that, you know, this this isn't slowing down. So it's almost a manifesto. There's a section at the back called the Entrepreneur's Manifesto, oh. um, which lists out some of these policies. Uh, and if any politician wants to adopt that, it'd be fantastic. But you know, if you if you look back at all of the great shifts 
you know, in the Industrial Revolution, where we are in Manchester today, you know, you needed Owenism, you needed, you know, the, 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 the policies that would support people during that Industrial Revolution um, to come through. If you look at the, the Second World War and the post-Second World War pact, the welfare state where we, were, we allowed big corporates to exist, we allowed the free market, but in return they had to contribute and the welfare state was, was part of that through whether it's NI or business taxes, you know, all of these settlements have happened time to time between the market and the state. And, uh, and yeah, I think, I think we're approaching another one. Um, so that's why I put in a few policy ideas at the end as well. So, but that, so that relationship between the firm and the state then, that was, uh, really interesting. Just expand on that for us. Well, there's, there's so many different interactions between, um, corporates, big corporates and government, right? Um, and so I can fill up, fill up with examples, but let's take, uh, the idea of, pensions right um so right now if you go and work and we'll, we'll focus on the uk the book is is, is global and actually the uk is you know, probably ahead of the pack let's say in adapting some of this stuff but let's take the uk if i go and work for uh you know even an sme let alone a big corporate uh, i now contribute to a pension through the dc scheme and that's taken off my my, my salary if i'm self-employed i'm not forced into a pension uh i can obviously go and do i can choose to but i'm not forced into a pension uh, and so the government has said to itself at some point, right, the way to ensure that we have um, properly funded private and public pensions going forward, uh, whether that's through NI, you know, charged on top of salaries for the NHS, or it's um, through you know, this, this enforcement of pension schemes for SMEs and corporates, the way to do that is to deal with firms. And we'll, we'll talk to the firms. The firms will say, yes, okay, um, when they probably want something in return. Good education system, healthy workforce, infrastructure, uh, and this is a fair settlement. And my concern is, well, what happens when 20% of the workforce are self-employed or work in small businesses and therefore aren't necessarily in a position where they can save for, uh, for you know, a well-funded pension? And is that something we're going to have to obligate people uh, to save into? And if we are, what's the quid pro quo for that? Who are you going to negotiate with? with? There isn't a head of GE. There isn't, yeah, yeah. You know, there isn't a head of Nissan. There isn't a head of, of uh, JCB or, or, or a big company who you can go and say, Here's a fair assessment, don't you think? Let's let's work this out. Um, and so we're going to find we're going to have to find new bodies and new new adaptive ways of building policy around entrepreneurs. And is it, why 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 a book? Why not something else? Well, that's a that's a fantastic question. Um, you know, I think I'm a big believer in uh, writing something down helps you think it through. Mm. Um, and this started as a blog post. Uh, but it, I started it at the end of COVID. Uh, I didn't have a social life. The markets were booming yeah, <laughs> and yeah. uh, I didn't have a son. Uh, and I finished it with a, with a son who's taken up all my free time and then obviously like lots of volatility in the market and, and a social life again. So uh, it, a blog felt like it was going to evolve into a book <laughs> in a lot easier ways than uh, eventually it did. But I think one reason is that there's so much that's happening in this space. There's so much interesting stuff happening in this space that every time I spoke to someone about it, and there's lots of interviews in the book. So I've interviewed lots of startup founders. I've interviewed freelancers. I've interviewed people who you know, are running multi-billion dollar startups. Um, there's loads and loads of interviews. Um, and, and spoke to many more people than were, were ultimately interviewed in the book. And every time I spoke to someone, there was a new idea um, that I felt deserved to be captured to try and put it into one cohesive argument. But uh, as you're more than aware, as now the, the nation's career advisor, that there's, um, there's many different routes to getting yeah. ideas out there and being part of the conversation. So look, it, it, it's a, hopefully it is a, a one piece of the conversation. And I hope other people will pick up on it and maybe include you know, 
more media and policy stuff comes out of it. Um, and why are you here at Conservative Party Conference, right? It's not teaming with venture capitalists. Uh, no, look, I, I think ultimately this the government right now is working on a lot of policy uh, that I think is going to be really, really important to the future of technology companies in the UK. Uh, and this is this is one way to engage with the government. Yeah. Um, and same with uh, you know going to any party conference. I think being um, part of the discussions in an informal and formal way, I think are really important. And you know you could be really critical and say, well, actually, technologists and venture capitalists, you know, finance and tech, very influential groups already. You know, they why are they in the conversation? Um, and I've actually found in, in the technology industry in particular. There is a natural inclination to be a bit anti-state, and I don't mean that as in like big C conservative yeah. or big C labor or, or not or libertarian. I mean if you're someone who already thinks you're going to build something which completely changes the world, you know, engaging with the state is in top priority. Yeah, and actually, I think that's pretty naive because the stuff that I've invested in over the last decade has, you know, been hitting the walls of of regulation more and more commonly. Right, it's not just social media apps, although they're heavily regulated now. Um, you know, it's self-driving vehicles, it's advances in health tech, which could you know, help diagnose and cure cancer, it's renewable energy platforms. You know, these are really important advances. And uh, in order to bridge that gap between the entrepreneurs we invest in who can be a bit, you know, anti-establishment, let's say, yeah. if not anti-state, and the government who wants to lean in and discuss uh, policy and get it right, um, I think there has to be voices in the room. And this is one of the rooms. Yeah, I... Uh... One of my favorite conversations uh, with dealing with entrepreneurs and so I was way before my time at number 10 was with uh, um, mutual friend Nick Hungerford, uh, founder of Nutmeg, and him just wanting to, the budget was the following week and he was lobbying for some change in the budget the next week. And I was like, I was at his director at the time, I was like, this is really not the way it's worked. This is not the way it works, Nick. And it was like the most curt conversation because he was like, there's no point in carry on talking then and basically hung up the phone but we became very dear friends afterwards um and uh yeah no it's uh it is interesting it's a it's a great example of where the world's just completely moved very differently like in terms of government being slow and entrepreneurs just moving fast right but it, it's a good point actually on the regulatory side like most of you know a lot of big companies can come from regulatory change right yeah and a lot of startups can be destroyed by poor regulatory change. Yeah. And so I, I have another hat on, uh, which is I'm a member of the Industrial Development Advisory Board, so, so provide advice on big industrial applications. Um, and you know we see some, some big companies apply for that and, and, and say, look, we want to be part of building the industrial future of the UK, and we're, you know, we're grateful for some support in doing that. Um, but I don't see many scale-ups and startups. They're just not aware of it. Yeah. Uh, and so being part of the conversation, I think, can help uh, that. And, you know, the world doesn't move particularly fast in the policy world. You, you, you've lived it, right? Um, so I'd be interested in, in your view of how it improves. But right now, as it happens, we are in a particularly fast period of change yeah. because of AI. And, um, you know, the, the UK is, is leading in communication on safety. It's got this big event coming up in the AI safety uh, event in November. And there's a lot of um, impetus around that at the moment, a lot of energy around that. And I think it's really important we get it right because the real risk actually is is not in my view the terminator turning up next week uh maybe let's let you know maybe we we need to watch out for it but it's it's not going to be here next week it's that we we uh, pass regulation now which locks everyone else out locks out competition yeah. only supports the big team and if you'd written legislation 
around the internet in 1997, we'd all be using, you know, Internet Explorer still and, and probably dial-up modems. So, yeah, yeah. I, you know, I think it's really important that we're open-minded and flexible. And so, so one of my roles uh, here today and then and in a couple of weeks' time is to speak up a little bit for the AI little person yeah yeah and, and you're also on the advisory board of demos as well demos yeah 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 right. Trust, i'm a trustee of the charity yeah. yeah um which is another way that you play a role in the policy space um what are what are some of the exciting companies that we should check out that we may not have heard of yet i mean <laughs> I'm, I'm always at risk of talking my own book. Yeah, <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm very aware of that. Um, but I, I can tell you, sort of, what's really excited me recently is existing businesses which have found ways of using AI to massively open up their services to new, new people who couldn't use them before. So to try and explain that a little bit more, we're investors in a company called Photo Room. And Photo Room is a very popular, it's one of the most popular, if not the top number one app in uh, f- photography on on, on the app store. It's a mobile-based photography app. Uh, very, very popular. Hundreds of millions of downloads, tens of millions of users. Um, and you could do stuff like, hey, I want to sell a nice pair of shoes on yeah. Depop or Etsy. You know, can you take this bad photo of mine and make it a nice photo? Did that absolutely fine. But now they've used generative AI to allow you to do so much more. So you can change the color, you can change the style, you can edit the background, you can take suggestions from the AI of like the angle you should position them at and what works well on a Google ad versus a Twitter ad. Had. And, and what's really interesting about that is that that level of sophistication in photography was only accessible to someone who'd spent probably five years using Adobe Photoshop and really knew how to use that expensive licensed software. But now, thanks to AI, tens of millions more people can start doing advanced photography. Um, Clio is another example. Clio is a great company. What's going to Bolton Investment helps provide financial advice to, to Gen Z um, mm-hmm. and navigate this very weird world of work, as well as uh, provide some financial solutions for them when needed. And, um, you know, Barney's actually very transparent about this kind of stuff, and he's a phenomenal CEO. But he's he's adopted uh, AI to just massively expand the advice it can give, his platform can give to people, so that they are getting, you know, higher and higher quality financial advice for nothing, for free, uh, in, in many cases. And once again, that's AI opening up a product, which already existed, uh, financial advice, in a way where millions more people could start accessing this productivity tool. So, so where I'm really excited is anywhere that's happening. It's happening a lot at the moment. Um, and I could talk to about another 20 companies in the Baldison portfolio as well, if you'd let me, but um, probably what, a bad idea. Okay, what, um, what are your predictions for the venture capital market over the next couple of years, right? Like it's been, um, you know, probably saw the peak of the market in 2021. What are you seeing in the next few years? Yeah, I mean, so the short term, bad. Uh, midterm, good. Long term, great. And I, I'll explain that. Um, so in the short term, bad. Year on year, venture capital investments down about 40%. Uh, if you look at H1 2022 to H1 2023, um, particularly acute in growth stage. So a stage where the UK, to be honest with you, has always struggled a little bit. Um, but those those rounds, those $100 million plus rounds, many you know, many of which from Tiger and SoftBank and Coty, they're happening less. Um, and the, the demand side for software, so, you know, mid-sized businesses and large businesses buying software has also come down. People's willingness to spend on software has come down as well, right? For obvious reasons. Energy crisis and cost of living crisis and inflation. So, so the demand side is down and the funding side is down a lot. That's, that's bad. Good, good news is, over the last five years, it's up. Uh, we, in the UK in particular, are huge adopters of early te- stage technologies. Whether that's you know, your your mobile, your bank, online banking, it's e-commerce, and um, the amount of venture capital, even in this very depressed 
market, and I would say we're sort of approaching the bottom of the super cycle that, that often technology goes through um, and financial frenzies go through. Uh, even now, more capital is available than it was five years ago. There's more willingness for people to try new things. There's more um, supportive culture around it. So, so midterm, actually quite positive. And in the long run, I'm super positive. And I say that because if you look at the technologies which accelerated a lot of the birth and growth of uh, great startups in the last decade, so mobile and cloud being the two obvious ones, um, we are seeing the advance in terms of falling cost and increasing power of so many more fundamental technologies at the moment, right? So it seems like a really trite thing to say right now, but energy costs are going to come down radically over the next five years as new technologies come to market. If countries get them right, if they get the regulation right, they get technology right, that's a huge opportunity. Cheaper energy is an amazing thing um, for innovation. Uh, same with AI and the power of compute. You know, what you can do now with pre-trained AI models at a lower cost and with higher outputs, phenomenal. You know, if you look at solar PVs, if you look at the cost of robotics, if you look at cost of cameras, which are essential to ca- uh, computer vision applications, which are essential to you know, robotics as well, or or or, um, or security or health, you know, all of these things are getting cheaper and becoming more widely available, and that's what fundamentally underpins innovation. And so, when you see these multiple waves of general purpose technologies becoming available to people. As long as we get the culture around them right, the funding around them right, the regulation around them right, and I think we're in a really exciting period to go out and start a new company. And I think venture capital is one of the best asset classes to support that. Who in your industry inspires you? <laughs> it's, a, it's a phenomenal question. <laughs> you can see my level of ambition. Yeah, yeah. Um, so so, so the, the person I, I'm amazed by is Mike Moritz. Yeah. And Mike Moritz is back, I mean, just about every single breakthrough company you can imagine. And he started his career as a journalist. Um, and he met Steve Jobs, interviewed Steve Jobs, and was like, this guy's the future. Yeah. Uh, I want to find a way to invest in him. Uh, and, and with that, he built Sequoia. Uh, and Sequoia is you know, arguably the best, if not one of the best uh, venture funds in the world consistently over many funds, over, over many decades. Uh, and Mike Morris is just one person there, right? But I think he's just phenomenal. And when he talks about um, people, and when he talks about technologies, he speaks with, with an amazing clarity. I don't agree with everything he says. Um, but he really does be with amazing clarity. And he got to write a book with Sir Alex Ferguson, which yeah. also is a, a life dream. Um, so that's so, an amazing book as well. It's a great book on leadership and, and talent. So, so you know, I think, I think someone like Mike Moritz, who really fathered this industry, is um, exceptional. But you know, most of the people that I work with are founders, not other VCs, obviously uh, external to Boulderton. Um, and it's really the founders I work with. You know, I think that the, the really privileged part of my job is, and so it's a hard job, right? Getting it right is hard. Very few funds get to two or three funds. We're on our approaching our ninth yeah, early yeah. stage fund and, 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 and second growth fund. You know, the really privileged bit is I get to meet maybe a thousand entrepreneurs a year, you know, whether it's a phone call or Zoom or yeah, it's yeah. in person. Uh, and I am lucky enough to work on a regular basis with the ones we invest in. Uh, and, you know, I, I won't pick out individuals because it feels, feels a bit unfair. But really, it's those people I sit in board meetings with every day and say, oh my God, what you've achieved in this month is more than you know, a lot of people could ever achieve just because you've, you, the way you've built this business or the sector you're in. Um, and I think that's sort of the, the profile of person I enjoy working with. But you, I mean, it's a useful example of the funnel, right? You meet a thousand people, what, you invest in 20 a year, perhaps? So well, like, Boulderton does. Yeah. I'll probably lead two or three of those investments. Yeah, right, so 0.02, yeah. Yeah, there's. A, I mean, raising venture capital is the process of exhausting all the no's. Yeah. Uh, um, and there's a lot of no's out there. 
Uh, and it should be hard. You know, we are, we are an asset class where we say, unlike any bank, we're not securing the money we invest in you in any asset. We don't want your home. We don't want the IP to the company necessarily. You know, you can do with it more or less what you want. We have a veto on certain things. But we're not, if you suddenly say, you know, James, that great idea I had last week, actually, it's rubbish. We're launching something new. As a board member, I'm 90% of the time, if you've got a good reason for it, I'm going to say, go for it. Yeah. Uh, right? We've never said, give us our money back. Um, um, you know, we, we wait around for a decade, often longer, to ask for the money back. A lot of people say, well, you know, finance is short term. We wait at least a decade. Yeah. Um, in the best investments, we wait longer to try and get our money back or, or even hope to get our money back. So it's really patient. And we are incredibly accepting of failure. We almost expect a lot of our investments to fail, just statistically they will, even if we don't think when we invest they will. So as an asset class, it's really unique, very suited to high innovation companies. But as a result, just, you know, is, is and should be hard to access um, because you know, not all companies will fit that profile. Definitely. When's the book out? November 23rd. Startup Century. Startup Century, Century. why we're all becoming entrepreneurs and how to yeah. make it work. Comes out November 23rd in, yeah. in all good bookshops in the UK. It's also online pre-order now all right yeah yeah yeah. on amazon elsewhere you can go to startup-century.com and you can chat with the book so i have put the book into an ai model uh so this book talks back you can ask it questions um and obviously if you like the responses to the questions you can buy the book and if you don't like them you can blame open ai that is very cool well people should definitely go and check that out right like startup-century.com Yeah, brilliant. Uh, James, thanks so much for coming on. Jimmy's Jobs of the Future. It's been a real pleasure to have you on. Great speaking to you.